0: sessions by Broadway Direct. In this podcast, we have in-depth conversations with Broadway's brightest, bringing you what's new, what's noteworthy, and what's coming next to a stage near you. I'm your host, Lisa Gardner, and our guest today is one of my personal heroes, and I'm sure that most musical theater fans would say exactly the same. I can think of no composer or lyricist who has done more than Stephen Schwartz to sustain musical theater's wider relevance since popular music changed with the advent of rock and roll. His scores are as robustly theatrical as they are graceful, with too many beautiful melodies to list here, witty and poignant lyrics, and none of the empty bombast we sometimes associate with rock-influenced musicals. Mr. Schwartz is also beloved for his work in film, which has won him three Oscars, and includes such movies as Pocahontas, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, The Prince of Egypt, and Enchanted. He has written reviews and choral works and ventured into opera with seance on a wet afternoon, and he holds four Grammy Awards and places on the Hollywood Walk of Fame and in the Songwriters Hall of Fame, among countless other honors. But it's with stage musicals that Mr. Schwartz has made his most obvious and timeless impact, from musical fan favorites such as The Baker's Wife and Working, to the long-running extravaganza The Magic Show, to enduring classics such as Godspell, Pippin, and the show that brings him here today, Wicked, now in its 16th year as a smash Broadway hit. And he continues to write, to inspire, and to serve other artists and foster new talent, for which he was honored with a special Tony, the Isabel Stevenson Award. Mr. Schwartz, I am thrilled to welcome you to Stage Door Sessions.
1: Thank you. That that guy you were describing sounds <laughs> so good to me. Wow.
0: Well, he's he's right here next to me. It's it's thrilling. Um, I know we're here to talk Wicked, and I'm going to get to that in just no time at all to make a lame reference <laughs> uh, to one of your
1: lyrics. You know, I'm always happy with those sort of references.
0: But I, I must ask, as someone who has always loved your music and grew up seeing it, is almost a missing link between the musical theater composers I loved and the popular singer-songwriters I loved. Who were your influences? Because I, I imagine you came of age with musicals and folk and rock and R B, all of which I hear in your music. Yeah, that's
1: ex- that. That is exactly accurate. Um, I started being interested in musical theater when I was, you know, six or seven years old. My parents. Um, took me to see shows because I grew up on Long Island. So we were proximate and neither of my parents was remotely in the arts, but they were theater goers. And so they took me to see musicals and I... Was immediately smitten and knew that I wanted in some way to spend my life uh, among them and working on them. A- and so I tried to learn a lot about musical theater, not just by seeing it, but I would go to the library and take out libretti and, and read them. And consequently, um, early on, the works of Rogers and Hammerstein and the way they structured shows was very influential on me and continues to be to this day. Um, Then in the 60s, when I went to college, um, I encountered the revolution in pop music and the singer-songwriters and R&B and some of the uh, music that you've uh, mentioned. And that became the music that I was listening to instead of original cast albums. And so when I began to get the opportunity actually to write musicals, I tried to bring the kind of music that I was listening to and was now inside me um, into the theater, but to do it within the kind of classic musical theater structure that I had internalized from people like the, the works of Rodgers and Hammerstein. So, so it's exactly the combination that you cited.
0: And you make it sound so easy. (laughs) Um, Turning to Wicked, though I will reference some of my other favorites later, let's go back to the beginning when it was decided to adapt Gregory Maguire's novel, Wicked, The Life and Times of the Wicked Witch of the West, a sort of revisionist look at that character from Wizard of Oz. I've gleaned the decision was made pretty early on to focus on the relationship between Glinda, the so-called good witch, and Elphaba, the supposedly wicked one, rather than focus on the latter. Um, In fact, I read that the piece was developed partly as a showcase for Kristen Chenoweth, who was the original Glinda, but as things progressed, it was the dynamic between the two central characters with Elphaba, played by Adina Menzel, that became even more interesting.
1: Yeah, uh, uh, to be honest, when we first started the show, I thought it was going to be a show centered really around the character of Elphaba a show like, you know, to go again back to classic musicals, Funny Girl or Gypsy or a s- central female character that you were following through the show and that the character of Glinda, Galinda who becomes Glinda, um, was going to be s- secondary the way she is in the McGuire novel. But then as Winnie Holtzman, uh, the book writer and I worked on the show, um, Glinda Glinda kept coming to the fore and very early on we realized that the heart of the show was the relationship between the two women. Um, and we actually made a little sign for ourselves that said, it's the girls, stupid. Um, <laughs> so that any time we were wandering through the thickets of the very complicated plot and would lose ourselves in the story of the talking animals or things having to do with the Alphaba's sister, et cetera, um, we would keep reminding ourselves, wait, wait, we have to get back to Alphaba and Glinda because that's really what our show is.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, It's also, Wicked, one of a a small handful of musicals in which two women and the bond and the tension between them are in focus. And it's probably a healthier or more accessible bond than it is in, say, Chicago Mm -hmm. (laughs) or Sideshow. Um, I think even in the era of Me Too, with all the change happening and the long-held injustices being addressed, The idea of two young women independent of men who were secondary characters in Wicked learning to accept and celebrate themselves and each other with all their complexities still seems revolutionary. I I can tell you, I went back and saw it with my daughter a few years ago before Me Too. uh, exploded. And she was about seven or eight, and it moved me in ways I could not even express. And I thought, boy, we can be pretty rough on each other as women, and it doesn't have to be (laughs) that way. And you don't often see that addressed in such an uplifting and forthright way.
1: Well, thank you. I have to be honest that when Winnie and I were writing the show, it didn't really occur to us that we were doing something revolutionary in terms of putting two very strong and complex female characters and their relationship sort of front and center, sort of the female version of a bromance. What there, there must be some <laughs> clever word for that, that, that I'm a not. A uh, Yeah, something like that. I'm, <laughs> I'm not inventing something clever off the top of my head. But we didn't really think of it that way. We were just telling this story. They were the two leading characters. Their relationship was what we were interested in. And... um And so that's what we were doing. And then later on when the show was out there and so many people were commenting on how unusual it was to have... Um, female characters front and center like this um, particularly as you say when they're not it, it, ultimately it's a very positive relationship although it certainly has its ups and downs but ultimately they both have a very positive lasting effect on one another and people started pointing out how revolutionary that was and how contemporary that was and you know we can take all the credit we want for it but the fact is we we were unaware of that when we were writing it
0: Hmm. Well, um, I've heard that Wicked, uh, speaking of the show, is is starting a new project that you call Flying Free.
1: Yes, I love this project. I think it's so cool.
0: Yeah, you and ASCAP have identified some up-and-coming songwriters who are going to write original material inspired by Wicked. Is is that right?
1: That is exactly right. I, again, I'd love to take credit for this idea, but I can't. It was pre- But it was presented to me, and I was so enthusiastic about it. Um, you may or may not know that for many years now, Um, I've run a, a musical theater workshop under the auspices of the ASCAP Foundation, and I do it in New York and Los Angeles um, and it's for aspiring musical theater composers, and a lot of um, young—well, now not so young—songwriters <laughs> who've gone on to uh, have success on Broadway and in Hollywood and musical theater have have come through the workshop. Um, so the idea of taking some really, you know, young songwriters, very, very talented young songwriters who are interested in writing for musical theater, having them come see Wicked, whether they'd seen it before or not, bringing them to the show and saying, you know, is there something that inspires you here about which you'd like to write a song and then hearing what they come up with is, I cannot tell you how much fun that is for me and how exciting it is. And, um, you know, I've heard the first couple of songs from this project by two really talented uh, young theater songwriters of whom I was uh, already aware, Kayan Hersey and Rana Siddiqui. And they've come up with two very interesting songs. And Interestingly and surprisingly enough, and independently of one another, they wrote about the same secondary character. And I'm not sure if I'm allowed to say who it is, but I would never have expected it. And they both went there. which is really interesting to me. And when I told them, you know, you both wrote about the same character, they were a little chagrined, but I said, no, no, the the songs are completely different.
0: So there was no conspiracy. They were both.
1: (laughs) No, they were, but, but that interests me that both of them went to see the show in 2019. And Fixed on an aspect of the show, which is quite political, because of course the show is very political yeah. in a lot of ways, but they fixed on a certain aspect of the show that wouldn't necessarily be where you would automatically think their minds might go and and wrote from that point of view.
0: Yeah, you mentioned young and at this point not so young. Um, are you aware at this point of somebody who's as somebody who's nurtured talent of the impact you've had on generations of of composers and lyricists at this point?
1: Um, well, I'd like to think that. <laughs> I like to think that there's been some some impact. I've certainly been a cheerleader, uh, if nothing else, for, you know, a lot of writers now, um, you know, who are out there and have had wonderful successes, um, you know, from... Uh, you know, uh, uh, Benj Pasek and Justin Paul, and Steve Lutvak, and Chris Curtis, and um, you know, even way, way back to um, to Lynn Aronson, Steve Flaherty. That was a long time ago. Um, yeah, but um, through the ASCAP workshop and some things that I was doing even before that, which is where I encountered Lynn and Steve's work. Um, you know, the fact that so many of these writers that I've admired and thought right away, oh, there's really something special there. And then to see so many of them flourish is really exciting. And um, it's also uh, reassuring to know that talent will find its way more often than not.
0: How about fans? Because Elphaba and Glinda, uh, speaking of Wicked specifically, have been embraced at this point, I'd imagine, by young people who haven't even necessarily watched Wizard of Oz or maybe they hold Wicked as a more primary reference point, at least. And both characters have a lot of resonance for, for young people, young women who may be struggling. Elphaba may be more obviously as the outcast, but Glinda too is this pretty popular young woman who might not be as secure as people think, or might want people to take her more seriously. Can you think of feedback from audience members that's been especially telling or or moving?
1: Yeah, lots and lots of it, um, which is one of the most gratifying things uh, about it. Um, You know, I think for whatever reason particularly the song Defying Gravity seems to speak to people and has had, um, I've been told, an inspirational effect. I I think of two um, emails I received uh, both about that song and having heard the song. One was from a woman, um, I think she was in Alabama. She was somewhere in the Southeast who was in, Uh, an abusive marriage and said that she felt she had felt trapped there and that she uh, was unable to leave. She didn't have skills and she had two young children and she didn't know what to do and that she had come across the song Defying Gravity and it sort of got into her head. And ultimately um, she left her husband and she went To I believe it was Tennessee, and she stayed with cousins for a while. And when she contacted me, she had just uh, secured a job and she just changed her life. And I mean, obviously I can't take credit for that, but the fact that she took the time to write to me about that and say that Defying Gravity and the whole character and circumstance in some way helped to trigger that, of course, you can see how much that means to someone as a, as a writer. Uh, I remember a young man, actually, um, who was going to a college in uh, 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 Well, I, I, I won't say the state, because I won't give it away, but he, he was going to uh, a college that was um, you know, run by a religious organization, and he wanted to start um, a gay-straight alliance. At the, at the college and they said no and um, made it very difficult for him, you know, when he was a freshman. And uh, he went to see Wicked and he heard Defying Gravity and he went back and he brought suit against the school and they caved. And so he was able to, you know, start that. And so it's, it's the fact that people are given courage yeah. by encountering these two characters. And I think you're very right to, um, to mention Glinda as well, these two characters who have to overcome the thing we all face about wanting to fit in, wanting to be popular, wanting to be part of whatever the in crowd is. Um, and when you go against that, you endanger all those things that you you think you want. Um, but when you can find the courage to do it, it can be very fulfilling. And And just hearing stories like this is... You know, as I say, you as as a writer, you you couldn't possibly ask for more gratifying feedback.
0: Yeah, two happy endings, and not only for women. It's yes, well that's huge, why I cited that. Right, yeah, that's why I cited LGBTQ that young man plus as well. Community yeah. As well, I know has really been inspired by that song. Um, you mentioned Rogers and Hammerstein before. You have written as a composer and lyricist a number of showstoppers of the kind that I associate with that team, um, and I know that, you've, I know that you've won the Richard <laughs> Rogers Award and the Oscar Hammerstein Award, so I'm not the only one thinking along those lines, probably, but I'm talking about songs that are personal revelations for characters, that sing them while also saying something so powerful and universal in such a soaring way that the audience feels just as intensely, something like "Define Gravity, which you just mentioned, or one of my personal favorites, Meadowlark from The Baker's Wife. Um, As someone who writes the music and lyrics, I'm curious, how do you determine what scale the characters and stories demand from song to song and balance all that?
1: Well, I think what I do as a writer, and I have to feel that it's what most theater writers are doing, theater composers are doing, I'm trying to find the part inside me that is that character, um, resonates with that character, just as if you were actually portraying the role, though when you're the writer, you get a much wider range of roles, of course, because you're not limited to your gender and your age and your appearance. But then to find out, you know, if I were Elphaba in this situation, if I were Quasimodo in this situation, what am I feeling? What am I seeing? What do I want? What am I trying to get? And and how does that express itself, both musically and lyrically? And I try to write that to the best of my ability. And I don't really think. About scale or, or or issues like that. I mean, ultimately, when you're putting a score together, of course, you want to think about variety and differences in tempo and and all that. So so I do keep that in mind. But basically, it's it's the process of writing in ter- from from inside out. Basically, it's sort of the the writing equivalent, I suppose, of method acting.
0: Yeah. Um, and the musicals you've written and been involved with have also addressed issues that never seem to stop being topical, often sadly so. Unfortunately, (laughs) in some cases. I know Encore has just did a great revival of working based on Studs Terkel's writing about the struggles and the dignity of working people, which couldn't be timelier concerns. Godspell is adapted from the Gospel of Matthew, which continues to remind us how Jesus's teachings espouse values that some of those who use his name rhetorically or politically might be. Thank <laughs> might you for saying that. that. <laughs> I, thank you for
1: saying that. I feel that yeah. so strongly. Yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah, it really brings that home. When Pippin was revived a few years ago, I interviewed choreographer Chet Walker, and he spoke about how relevant this Vietnam era musical involving a long ago war was now that we were in Iraq. And of course, Gregory Maguire's novel that inspired Wicked was informed by Saddam Hussein's reign and the power of media. The original Wizard of Viz had political overtones. Um, So do you think a lot about that kind of context when you are writing? Does your social... Conscience play a big role.
1: Um, I think it does. It's it's not that I go in trying to proselytize a certain point of view, but I think that the topics I'm attracted to have um, social relevance. I'm, I'm I'm certainly not alone in that. I mean, you cited Rogers and Hammerstein, oh, yeah. and you know they are uh, famous, of course, among any for many other reasons, but certainly famous for that. But yeah, I think a sort of Social conscience and looking at what's going on in our world and addressing some of that through the stories that I'm attracted to is is definitely a part of what I do, whether, you know, whether I want that or not, that's what happens.
0: Yeah. And Rogers and Hammerstein certainly revolutionized Broadway in that way with, with their stories and themes. Uh, the Prince of Egypt is about to arrive on the West End. Yes, it
1: is. And
0: I know you just revealed some new songs at a benefit last year. Since you remain so prolific, can you tell us about the material that you're working on right now?
1: Um, I can tell you some things. I mean, Prince of Egypt is front burner. And uh, in fact, uh, in a couple of weeks, I'm going over to London for uh, a workshop uh, for that show. But the the actual production uh, is, is happening in February over in the West End. It opens uh, towards the end of February. And there are uh, 10 new, I think, 10 new songs for that. Um, and then I have what I've described as a lot of spaghetti thrown at the wall. And we're <laughs> going to see what, if any, of it sticks and what slides off, um, having to do with a couple of um, potential movie musical projects, uh, which uh, unfortunately I don't think I can uh, announce at this time. But I hope at least one of them looks likely to happen. Um, and that would be, you know, that would be exciting and and uh the the idea of doing uh, an original live action movie musical is something that I've wanted to do for a long time. So I'm I'm hopeful that I will actually get that opportunity.
0: That's great. And you juggle all of that with your continued support for developing artists. And I should say that extends to the youngest performers and audience members uh, through your Theater for Young Audiences program, which includes musicals written or adapted so they can be staged by and for kids. Tell us a little bit about that.
1: Well, years ago, I remember a survey um, at a time when musical theater seemed to be on the decline, and there was a lot of concern that the audience for musical theater was aging out, um, and that it was not reaching younger audiences. That, of course, is very, very um, happily no longer true. But at that time, I read a survey that if someone sees or is involved with a musical before the age of seven, then they become musical theater fans for life. And that the older they get past that, the less likely that is to be. (laughs) So um, it seemed that it was important to help um, keep alive and keep healthy this art form that I loved, to find ways to interest um, kids in, in musicals, early on. Of course, I wasn't alone with that. And um, Freddie Gershon at MTI created this whole idea of the junior series of musicals, which was a brilliant idea. And, and um, you know, some of my shows have, have been able to be done with them, but I, inspired by that and other things, you know, I've really tried to put that as, as part of my focus.
0: I, I interviewed you years ago. And if I remember correctly, you described yourself adhering to the follow your bliss school of parenting with your son. That
1: is true. Scott,
0: who has turned out to be a prolific artist in his own right as a director. He's currently artistic director of the Bay Street Theater, exactly. which also does terrific stuff for kids, along with their other great work. Um, then I read on your site that you espouse that same philosophy in those words, follow your bliss to people starting out in show business. Um Generally, I have to ask, with all the shifts we've seen in the world in recent years, despite the progress in the arts and elsewhere, is it a challenge to stay focused on the bliss ever, uh, our, on our potential to do great things and to feel great about them?
1: Sure. I mean, I think that it's it's no secret that we're in a very dark time right now, and it can be extremely discouraging. Um, but the encouraging element, I think, or Maybe the most encouraging of several encouraging elements is the um, the fact that the that a younger generation is starting to assert itself and say um, we don't want to live in the world that's going to come if we just keep going along with what's going on now and and we want change and we want things to be different. Um, that's not exactly following your bliss, but it's certainly deciding that you're not just going to go along um but I still think on an individual basis in terms of choosing how to live your life and and what you want to do when you're starting out it's best to find out where your passion lies and and try to follow that um and as as is, is obvious that path may not be a straight path and you may not wind up going exactly where you originally thought you were going to or hope to go. But if you keep following what it is you're actually passionate about and care about and want to do, it will lead you to something that um, that is fulfilling to you, or it's more likely to lead you to something that is fulfilling than if you try to make so-called smart choices um, along the way.
0: Yeah. Love what you do and you'll never work a day in your life, right? Exactly right, if you can do <laughs> you, you still can do feel that, that way.
1: I definitely feel that way. I still feel like I've never worked a day in my life.
0: <laughs> <laughs> wow, that is so great. Um, well, as Wicked approaches its 16th anniversary on Broadway to return to the hit that brings you here and wrap up, what do you see as its legacy? I mentioned its impact on a generation of writers and performers and fans, its role as a great musical and storytelling vehicle. It's positive and nuanced look at female relationships. So what did I miss?
1: (laughs) I I don't think you did miss something. I I mean, I think that um, the the emphasis on two young women as the the central uh, um, protagonists, if you will, co-protagonists, turned out, surprisingly enough, to be revolutionary and clearly had impact on uh, works that followed. Um, and so, you know, I think that is um, maybe its historic theatrical legacy, if you will. Um, you know, other than that, it's it's another story about um, outcasts or people who feel themselves outside of society trying to f- come to terms with what compromises they are or are not willing to make in order to fit in—you um, know—that's a theme that I write about over and over again. And uh, you know, clearly, Wicked is is part of that um, th- that body of work.
0: Yeah, as is uh, as are all the great musicals. At the end of the day, I think, in some well, way or many another, many of them, many yeah. of them, yeah. many of them, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for coming here today. It's always a I pleasure really to talk appreciate to you. Thank it. you so much. And I hope you'll come by for your next big project.
1: Okay, promise.
0: <laughs> Excellent. For all things Broadway and to find tickets to your next show, visit broadwaydirect.com. This podcast is produced by Broadway Direct, your source for all things Broadway, and the Niederlander organization with Iris Chan, Glenn Halcom, Erin Pervoznik-Wagner, and hosted and produced by me, Elisa Gardner. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you soon on Broadway.